of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, November the 9th, 2023. This is episode 3401, and under the new schedule, it is time for an expert counsel Q&A show for the week. Uh, I actually messed up today. I put out early that there was going to be a live stream today on using hydroponics to grow salads all through the winter. That show will be on Monday, and it will be, might I say, a fantastic show. Uh, I was really excited about doing it today, but having the uh, weekend ahead of me to ruminate on it and think about it um, will make it even better. I'll be able to play with it a little bit and get some more supporting material together and all. I think it'll be a great show. So I have to credit my amazing, my wonderful wife, Dorothy. For the fact that I even figured out that I screwed up. She's like, aren't you supposed to be doing like a Q&A show today? I'm like, no. And what she meant was expert counsel. So thanks to her, we're back on schedule now. In my defense, we just changed the schedule. We came off a workshop, and I did a rewind on Monday. So it's easy to kind of space out. But hey, you know what? At least I'm ahead. I'm ahead for next week. That's got me pretty excited. Of course, we have now gone to a four-new-show-a-week schedule, and that means on Friday, tomorrow, we'll be doing a uh, Friday flashback. And the flashback series is we are, we are going to the very first interview. We've already done a couple of them, but we started at the very first interview, and every Friday we run an interview from the past. Right now we're running interviews from 2009 and 2010. Uh, that's before we did regularly scheduled interviews. I did them where and as I could because, as many of you know, who have been around a while, I was still doing the podcast in the car, and I needed to be home uh, in my home office to be able to do interviews. So uh, there's a whole series coming up that came from uh, Dirt Time, uh, where I interviewed uh, people like Christopher Nidges and Ron Hood and uh, somebody else who will be tomorrow, and I won't tell you who it is. You'll have to wait and find out. Anyway, if you have been skipping the Friday flashbacks, because like they're old, they're, guys don't. I almost never do an interview with anybody that's time-sensitive. They're all what we call in the world of marketing evergreen. So I don't have people on to talk about politics of the day and such. I, I might have somebody pretty big name coming on pretty soon about that, but uh, it's the exception to the rule. So uh, there's a lot of wisdom back there. It's an incredible archive uh, that just sits there and you know gets you know a play or two here and there. Most people focus on the new ones. So it's a good way to recycle that and give me a little more time with my family. Uh, I recommend as you build your businesses, you find ways to emulate things like that so that you can actually benefit from owning a business instead of just having a job where you work for yourself. You actually own a business that works for you. Anyway, before we get into what we're going to be covering today, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today is JM Bullion, where you can stack silver with great pricing, free shipping, and MSB members, you even get a discount. Nobody gets you a discount on silver and or gold, but I do. Because of our long-standing relationship with J.M. Bullion, which is almost 10 years now we've worked with this company. They're a fantastic company. Uh, I say this all the time, though it's kind of redundant at this point. There are no problems. They don't exist. 
But if there ever is a hiccup, a problem, an issue, I can get directly in touch with the president of the company. This is why I told companies like Monex and Atmex and Lear Capital to go screw when they wanted to sponsor the show because they wouldn't give me a contact at high enough of a level to fix problems to where I could get a definitive, are you going to do this or not? Right, I have to have that for my sponsors. So check them out today. Next up today is RidgeWallet.com. Awesome EDC gear. I love carrying the Ridge Wallet. It's made my life so much better. Been carrying it now about five years. I guess we're heading for a sixth year with Ridge Wallet as a sponsor. Check them out today at Ridge.com. They've gone from just being a company with a wallet and a few other things to being a really cool full-scale EDC company with some really cool EDC gear. Check them out today at Ridge.com. With that, let me tell you what we're going to be hearing from today. It's not a huge lineup, uh, huge in name, but not huge in numbers. Uh, we do have some piking going on, but I have five segments for you plus mine. Uh, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams will be talking about the money and weapons are flowing to Israel with staggering innocent death toll. And, and there really is. And this is a difficult issue. This whole thing with Israel and Palestine, it's not as cut and dry as the TV would have you believe. Um, but this is another one of these places where, you know, I, I have an opinion about who's committed the greater atrocities. And it is Hamas. But there's a whole lot of people trapped in the middle of this. And I'm back to, I think the world would be a better place if the U.S. stopped sticking our nose into everything, especially in the Middle East, where we have literally made everything we've ever touched worse. Um, and then Dan McAdams will talk about how the road to tyranny is paved by the left and the right. I watched a very small bit of the Republican debate last night, and boy, that just hits this perfectly. Jeff Lawton will talk about how a single dominant tree... Uh, can stagnate or dominate succession. In this case, he's talking about eucalypts, um, which is an issue in Australia and also in some parts of California. But this would apply to any place where a tree has kind of taken over as the dominant species, and it's not necessarily beneficial to man or the ecosystem. Nick Ferguson is going to talk to you about dealing with beavers. It's when they're taking out your hedges. Tim, the tool man cook, will talk about old trucks with no computers as a bot. A bot, like a, like a robot? No, as a bug out truck. Bug out truck, B-O-T. Uh, thoughts on boosting the immune system? Actually, um, I'm going to talk about that. Ken Berry is going to answer a question about a supplement known as Quisertin. He's going to give you a very negative answer. You guys know I've recommended and continue to recommend Quisertin for a long time. You might think I completely disagree with Ken. I do and I don't. I do and I don't. I think it's going to be interesting. After Ken gives his answer, I'll come back and give you mine. I see Quisertin as a immuno support uh, supplement. Ken comes at this as Quisertin as an antioxidant. These are very different effects. And it, it's interesting how a person who is really switched on and really smart sometimes maybe gets tunnel vision. We'll see. And if Ken disagrees with me, after he hears my response, he's free to uh, to uh, send us another segment, and I will play it. Because I think this is something I really love, is having intelligent people that are okay disagreeing. Because that's how we all learn. I had a blast at TSP 23 in a panel discussion with Matt Powers, Stephen Reisner, Nick Ferguson, and myself. And a big part of it was that we all had different takes on the same thing and different viewpoints, and we had some disagreements. And that is one of the most beneficial things you can have, is very uh, astute 
explanations of disagreements because then people can figure out what works best for them and we can all continue a quest for the truth. And my segment today is going to be five homestead production side hustles that I consider layups. Like these are things that anybody can do, maybe not all of them, maybe all of them. They're not full-time businesses, though they could be, but they are a way to put, you know, five, ten thousand dollars a year in your pocket that you wouldn't otherwise have. And none of them are hard, and many of them might be things you're already doing. It's just understanding that you have the ability to take some of the production and convert it to a different kind of yield, rather than a yield that you eat or that you use to increase your fertility on your property, a yield that you actually export to others and have a monetary yield from. So that's what we got today. Let's lead off with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights for the week. White House says Israel has killed, quote, many, many thousands of innocents, end quote. Uh, that's an incredible admission um, that uh, the, I think it was spokesman John Kirby made. Um, and then uh, here's what he says. The comments were made by White House National Security <laughs> Council spokesman John Kirby, who previously told reporters to expect that Israel would continue to kill innocent civilians. So they've killed many thousands of innocent civilians, and they're going to kill thousands more. So just get used to it is basically, just put that up for one more second, is basically what Kirby is saying. You know, this is not just target practice. Yeah. I mean, this is, we have to wipe them out. Yeah. And uh, as if that's going to solve the problem. But that's a, that's a terrible philosophy to have. It, but here we're standing there. We're trying to figure out what's going on. And we might be uh, a very, very uh, influence in the whole mess. Help to create it. Yeah. Our weapons, our money. And, peop uh, and, yet, and yet right now we'll probably talk about why they just sort of uh, thumb their nose at at us, even though the United States is, is doing all this mischief and providing the weapons and all, but they, they won't take any orders. And I, I think that if you're going to do it, uh, the orders should change. <laughs> you yeah. know, like if you won't do what we tell you, you know, we might just cut off your aid. Well, why did we ever start it? Yeah. You know, that's, that's my beef. Yeah. Well, here's just an example of the absolute hypocrisy of the U.S. government, of the Biden administration. I'm sure he's, he's joined by most Republicans on this. This is from the same article. Despite the grim death toll, the U.S. still refuses to place any limits on Israel's use of American weapons. Yeah. When asked on Tuesday about civilian casualties, Pentagon spokeswoman said, we don't put conditions on weapons we're sending or that Israel is using. So can you imagine, I mean, this makes you an accomplice to the crime. If killing innocent children is a crime, then we're accomplices. Here's the thing, though. You know, the Russia-Ukraine war, which you just mentioned, uh, it's been going on for almost two years now. Less civilians have been killed in that war, Ukrainian civilians by Russia. Less have been killed in two years than have been killed in one month in Gaza. Yet... You heard uh, Biden and all of his minions blinking, talking about Putin is committing war crimes, Putin is committing a massacre, Putin is committing a genocide, where it took two years for them to kill as many innocent civilians as were killed in one month. Yes, that's right, Dr. Paul. We see in the headlines today, it's, uh, a lot has changed over the years. Uh, the big pharma vax companies are not doing so well. And, you know, we just have to go back not too long ago where we were told that these mRNA shots were a literal miracle. And people were losing their jobs for rejecting to inject this miracle into themselves. You know, think back to New York. These are, this is a major state. The governor was saying that God wanted everyone to take this shot. 
and the mayor of New York City, he wasn't so uh, religious about it. He was giving out burgers and fries. Uh, at the time, Moderna's stock was $500 because their so-called customers were being coerced to take their product. And today it's in the 70s, so it has crashed. And we see now headlines that Pfizer and Moderna are in uh, big trouble when it comes to these vaccines. Nobody wants them. We saw the latest that I saw from the CDC is only 2% of people are getting these you know, updated jabs. Well, that means 98% are saying no. And uh, so a lot has changed. A, it means the truth does win out in the end. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed because, you know, uh, even though um, we don't agree with the policies advocated by the left, they were totally captured. You know, they're, you know if, when you read their tweets, uh, the corporations, corporations, you know, it's good for them to keep corporations' feet to the fire. But they were advocating rabidly that people must take this corporate product or you're killing everybody. And it was all nonsense. You know, and then they moved to the Ukraine war. So where a hundred billion dollars are gone. This is again big corporations. So the left has to snap out of it. They're being used to make these big corporations massively rich. You know, so uh hopefully they snap out of it because they are now a party of government plus corporations and I, that's not what they used to be. Yeah, power relies on fear. Wherever you see mass fear you can be sure that there is a government looking to take away liberty and corporations looking to take your money. Okay, so, and we are led from one fear event to another, and they're big, big enough to encompass enough people. Uh, whether it was COVID and we moved immediately to Ukraine, once the Ukraine well dried up and Ukraine is nowhere near going to win anything, it went right to the Middle East. And, you know, I talked about the left, now the right has abandoned everything. There are no, the MAGA is gone. There is no make America great again because now we are, their focus is U.S. intervention in the Middle East. And with each of these events, our freedom and money are taken away. So Americans on both sides, left and right, have to snap out of this. We're being led by our emotions. Yeah, like I said, definitely last night, uh, watching a little bit of the GOP debate, I mean, the only person there that sounded like someone you would even consider for your president was Vivek Ramaswamy. Really. I mean, I will say that a lot of the things that Ron DeSantis did in Florida, I wholly endorse. There's also some things I disagree with, but I really thought the guy would come off a lot better in debates. He comes off like a snarky, egotistical prick without actually attacking anybody. He just doesn't do well in debates. He doesn't sound presidential. Um, the rest of them were a joke. Nikki Haley is a warmonger Karen. Uh, Chris Christie is only there to just shit talk everybody and shit talk Trump. That's the only, like he's being paid to do that. No one thinks that lard ass will ever be president. Uh, so I'll, I'll let the left right thing go. I want to dig into the Israel conflict with Palestine, Gaza Strip for a second. And I'm going to take a totally different angle on it than I think most of you would expect. So, it is a difficult-to-unpack thing. It is a place in the world that has been at conflict for thousands of years. Um, you can say that Hamas initiated the conflict this time around, uh, again, except there's a, lot of, there's a lot of bullshit in this. There were embedded journalists with them. But I'm going to put all of that on the shelf because I want to come at this from a different angle that's more applicable to our future 
about conflict anywhere in the world, including conflict right here at home. We are living in a fantasy-ass, illusionary world, and we have been since really heavily the first Gulf War in, in 1990. When CNN came into our living rooms and showed us a tank hiding up under an overpass and a smart bomb coming in at an angle and blowing up the tank and saying, look at the precision, we didn't even destroy the road. Um, that's not the reality of conflict since then up till now, but it is definitely not the reality of conflict in the world as a whole. We have this illusionary bullshit mindset. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be this way. I'm saying it's not, especially historically. This illusionary bullshit mindset that in a war, civilians are like set apart. They're set apart. And soldiers who hide amongst civilians or are where the civilians are are bad cowards running away instead of coming out and fighting. This is complete nonsense. And there's a danger in it. And the danger is that we will look at war without understanding its horrors. Let me tell you the historical concept of war from Vietnam back all the way to the first time somebody clubbed somebody in the head with a stone. If you're on the other side, you're a target. If you're on the other side, you're a target. The United States itself firebombed Tokyo, a, house, a place where most houses were made out of wood and paper. We firebombed Tokyo. Tokyo. We killed more people firebombing Tokyo than we killed when we dropped the bombs on uh, Hiroshima and or Nagasaki. I don't know if we killed more than the two of those atomic bombs combined, but I, and I think we did. But I absolutely know for a fact we killed more people in the firebombing of Tokyo and many other cities in Japan, by the way. Tokyo just being the most densely populated and the most death. And we did that not once, over and over and over again, turn the city into rubble. The British, toward the end of the war, firebombed Dresden, okay? And they did immense damage that was completely unnecessary. The war was done at that point, okay? In the American Civil War, or the war between the states, one of the linchpins to the North's victory was the siege of Vicksburg, and within about 40 days, people were living on rats and dogs. Okay? When we had the war between the states, and we had the march, Sherman's march, they burned everything. Scorched earth policy. The Russians, when they retreated from the Germans in World War II, burned their own shit. Now, I'm not saying any of this means that what Israel's doing is okay. Right? And I'm not even bringing the Ukraine-Russia conflict in it, but it is kind of my point. Russia thinks this way. That's why Russia sees this as a territorial dispute over a, a piece along the border. Trust me, if, if Russia viewed this as a full-scale nation-on-nation conflict, Kiev would be rubble right now. And anybody that tells you that the only reason it's not is Russia can't do it, and our air defense artillery and all the other boats is lying to you, or they're too stupid to know the truth. Russia could turn most of Ukraine into a glass factory without a single nuclear weapon if they wanted to. And if it was full-scale warfare, that's what it would look like, and maybe nukes would come with it. 
And we need to be in touch with this reality and this fantasy bubble that we live in. Again, this is not an advocation for anything. And if you think it is, your tiny little brain is refusing to accept facts because they conflict with your, with your preferences. And, your, and facts don't give a shit about your feelings or your preferences. Facts don't care. The history of warfare is one side completely submits and annihilates another until it surrenders. And the reason that's important is because it's not gone. And future wars, including wars on our shores, may very well be fought this way. And if people would get that out of the, get that understanding, maybe they would cheer a little less for war. Maybe they would say, hold on, why are we involved in this thing over here? Why are we provoking another nation that could bring that type of warfare to us? Why are we advocating? Because, trust me, it happens a lot. There are plenty of conflicts throughout the world where this is what's being done and has been done recently. And you see the sanitized, sterilized bullshit they show you. And then they say, oh, look, Russia hit a building. It's a war crime. No, it's war. And war is terrible. War is a crime, okay? We have war, like war crime is so redundant. There's the rules of war. No, the rules of war are the person that wins gets to make all the rest of the rules. And that's not a good thing. Again, one more time, I'm not advocating anything. I'm telling you, this is stone cold truth and reality of the violence of conflict of the human species for tens of thousands of years. One side comes into the other and wipes the other side out until they submit. And don't think it's gone just because your TV shows you smart munitions. And just because people make up things and pretend things. It's not real. War is effing hell. Let's go on to something different. Let's talk about a single species dominance in a forest system and what can be done about it with Jeff Lawton. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, the lowest place on Earth. Okay, uh, Eucalypts. I have a question about Eucalypts here, coming in from Liam. Sounds like Liam's in Australia, and he's worried about the uh, Eucalypts dominating succession or stagnating succession, and uh, what my thoughts are on whether that could change. Well, I think it definitely could change if we want it to change. Um, it's obviously um, a land of eucalypts. There's 873 different species within the genus, enormous diversity, and, and they don't all burn, of course, and Liam points out to that. And there can be up to 800 um, associate species in the understory with the eucalypts. Now, um, they've been sort of created by Aboriginal burning over many hundreds of thousands of years. And there's many species that are now fire dependent in Australia. Could we grow out of that and go on to something else? I believe we could. And um, we could do it by introducing non-fire dependent weed species. Um, as um, uh, Fred Wilde points out in the classic book, uh, Fred Pierce, sorry, points out in the classic book, uh, New Wild, um, invasive species are the saviors of Earth. Their response, and nature's classic at uh, responding, it's not a genetic engineer like we are. It responds in relation to the situation. 
and um, invasive species often take up crucial gaps. We're just not patient enough to watch and learn and listen and, and see what actually happens. Um, but anyway, um, there are all kinds of unusual successions that are happening within eucalypt dominance. Um, in my area in northern New South Wales, areas dominated by eucalypt after massive clear cutting for the original timber around uh, 120 years ago, um, eucalypts dominated the landscape. And then a bird from another state, way down the other end of Australia in the south, a Victorian bellbird moved in and started to dominate the area and farm lerps. The bellbirds in Australia farm a little insect called a lerp and they protect the area from um, other birds coming in. And so they're kind of lerp farmers, but the lerp kills the eucalypt. And so there was much concern by the greeny environmentalists who wanted to interfere with nature's plan and, um, and poison the bellbirds. Luckily, they didn't because what actually happened was the, um, a lot of eucalypts died out, not all of them, but in the wet gullies, um, rainforest came up and replaced the dying eucalypt. Now, that's way beyond the seed viability of the rainforest, and they're not kind of seeds that travel by other means by other animals or birds, but uh, magically, or with mystery to modern science, uh, rainforest came up and dominated those areas and uh, replaced the eucalypt. So we had a 120 year successional event by an invasive species of bird from another state of Australia, move into way up in the subtropical north and do a functional niche job in time. Now, I'm sure all kinds of things like that can happen and could happen, and, and we could allow them to happen and we could even introduce species that could facilitate that those sort of events. We could, by design, and it's always design we're short of, we're not stuck in successional events stagnating or dominating. We're stuck with not enough design. We've, we've got to design within the parameters of nature and stop getting sentimental about native and non-native endemic species everything's endemic to this planet right and it can find a niche and do a job and succession will always take over and move towards the more stable long-term succession it's always our interference that creates these problem events if you actually look and analyze over time the the interference that we've made into natural sequences um, if we just get out of the way and allow an assembly of species to sort out the natural orders and move into a succession, it will move towards stability, permanence and a, a stable di interactive diversity. Now, um, I know some people might be contentious about this, but I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. The classic books that have been written, New Wild, Invasive Species, The Saviors of Earth, I promoted a lot um, by uh, Fred Pierce is one of many, many books that I've read over the last 20 years that, that look at this in different ways with different eyes. Before that book, just a year or two before, The Inheritors of Earth by Christy Thomas was released. And, and that goes through exactly the same set of, of, of analysis towards invasive species and what a great great job they do of course the pharmaceutical chemical companies are going to argue tooth and nail that we should just use poisons and and fund their little adventure through the economy of destruction and and buy more poison to put on the land 
Let me tell you, you do not have a headache because you have a deficiency of aspirin in your body. That's what the pharmaceutical promoter, the doctor will tell you, right? That's, you don't have weeds because you have a deficiency of herbicide. It, there's other situations happening and those beautiful biomasses of fast carbon pathways, thank goodness they're there doing a great job for us, fighting on the front line for freedom. Thank you. So just real quick on that, um, the book he mentioned, the author he mentioned, is The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation by Fred Pierce. This is available at TSPAS. I have a write-up on it. I added a link to the show notes. I think it's one of the most important books you can read. And the more I learn about fungal dominance in our soil systems, the more I see that is the biggest problem, which is why I am and have been for a long time practicing a version of Johnson Sioux composting. By the way, I, I am uh, I, I wanted to always do that aquatics course, and uh, it's a huge undertaking, and I really need to get my feet wet with something. And since the workshop, I actually put together a syllabus, on my composting system, I am 80% done with the deck for the presentations. It will be multiple presentations, a five-chapter course uh, that will be published on Learn Dash, and it will be coming much quicker than you'd think. I know that I have a habit of like, I'm going to do this, and then like I got the podcast to do it all. I have time now. I have more time than I've ever had with the new adjustments to the schedule. I've promised more things like this, and so that's coming, and it's 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 almost done. I did. 80% of it yesterday. And uh, it'll be the kind of thing that I can just present and get it streamed and get it up. And uh, I'm going to talk to Tom about maybe get being like cutting him in for a piece if he's interested uh, on doing, like, here's the material. Now you put it on Learn, Learn Dash for me. I think that could be a, a way to do more things like this. And fungal dominance is huge. But definitely consider, if you never got the book when I've reviewed it before, and I probably need to bring it around on T-Spaz again, The New Wild, Why Invasive Species Will Be Nature's Salvation by Fred Pierce. What I got out of that book more than anything else is the patterns that we saw science exhibit, so-called science, the institution science, not the process science, during COVID is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's dogma. It's industry-led, controlling academia, roping science in and dictating what the results are supposed to be and calling for research to give the answer that industry wants over and over and over again. The day we started seeing science as an authority instead of an error-detecting process, everything went to shit. And it continues to go to shit because science should be the guardian of truth. But it's not. It's Once you make something an authority, it can't be a guardian. A guardian has no authority, right? A guardian simply says, I will stand here as a protector, a defender, and then I will guard whatever most needs guarding at the time. Once you take the guardian and turn the guardian into an emperor, everything falls apart. So really read this book, because not only will it open your eyes to this topic... The other thing it will do is define the pattern for you. As divergent as they are, the real Anthony Fauci by RFK Jr. and the New Wild by Fred Pierce exhibit the exact same pattern of science, academia, and industry. 
And once you see it from a couple different angles, you will never unsee it ever again. You will see the Fenords, and when you see the Fenords, they have no power over you anymore. Next up, we'll start about something totally different. How about beavers and your shrubs, and they want to eat all your shrubs down. And what do you do, Nick Ferguson? Nick Ferguson here with an expert counsel answer on beaver-proof hedges. But first, I thought I'd give a little update. I'm back from my camping and hunting trip. And I'm going to be working on some soil test analysis and mineral recipe formulations for clients that have been waiting for those. Um, And I just wanted to let you all know that all November and December, I'm going to be accepting um, requests for uh, doing more of those analysis. So if you want to get your garden, orchard, or pasture soils tested and have me work up a mineral prescription blend for your land, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com with soil test in the subject line, and I can get you put on my schedule. Fees and description are on the website on the consulting tab. That's homegrownliberty.com. All right, on to Reed's question about living fences and beaver trouble. Expert counsel question for Nick Ferguson. Uh, What kind of living hedge can withstand a beaver? I have a farm on a creek that leads to a lake with beavers on it. They are regularly taking down trees around the creek that then take down my fence, and then the beaver come on the farm and take down trees on the farm. This also leaves the farm open to deer getting in. There are also otters traveling the creek. They haven't been trouble for me yet. I do not live at my farm. I'd love to put in a living fence hedge, but not constantly be repairing the fence. Is that even realistic? Thanks, Reed. Um, well, Reed, I have good news and bad news. The bad news is that beavers love to eat cambium, and they're going to eat those trees no matter what you do. So to answer that question, no. I don't know of any living hedge that can survive a beaver attack. Uh, they're, they're just going to eat anything that you plant there. That's what they do. <clears throat> so you have two options. You can plant a very thick band of hybrid willow and hybrid poplar and provide way more food for them than they can mow down, possibly, and you have a living coppice system that the beavers manage for you. It might just draw them in even more. I don't know. Uh, There's a lot of details that I don't know about this, so that could be a really bad solution. Or you can go with a timeless T-post, high-tensile electric fence, and fiberglass pipe for corners and boss posts. That fence can survive the trees dropping on it and will need minimal maintenance or repair when that happens. And the electric shock will persuade a wet beaver to go elsewhere. Uh, I wish I knew which one of those would be better option, but there's a lot of factors at play, like I said, and I'm just not sure. So I'll leave it at that and let you decide what sounds best for your situation. Hope that helps, and good luck with your beaver trouble. Remember to get those emails sent if you want to get on my list for soil prescriptions this fall and winter. I can get you the information for where to send your soil samples and what type of test to order. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Hey, good stuff as always from Nick. Let's go ahead and hear now from Tim, the toolman cook, about selecting a truck prior to the advent of everything being computerized where they are easier to maintain. Tim, take it away. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another expert counsel question for you, so let's dive right in. This question comes from Justin, and he says, Hey Jack, I got a question for Tim. What might be your top picks for a non-computer pre-1988 work homestead truck? 
Hey Tim and Jack, I'm looking into old work trucks with no computers to worry about as an easy to maintain reliable work truck. Moving materials, plowing on property, some off-roading on property, and running down zombies after an EMP. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Just kidding. I know in general anything pre-1988 has no computerization, and some examples I have seen include the old Ford F-Series like the F-100, the Chevy C-100, K-100, International Harvester Pickup, and Dodge Power Wagon, to name a few. I'm curious what your take is on any of these and what your picks would be. Thanks, Tim. Okay, well, let's slide back a little bit. First off, most of my... Uh, well, okay. My newer experience with trucks are Dodges, of course. I've had a, a Ram 1500 for quite a few years now. But all of my older experience has been with the Ford, um, kind of in the F-150 range, and they have been really reliable. So the older experience I'm going to have to come from is going to be on the Ford thing. However, this was a question that I myself would have a very surface-level understanding. So I reached out to my brother-in-law who, after a few years, left his job as a mechanic to start his own business as a mechanic, whom I'm really proud of, trying to get him on the show at some point. And I knew that I sent him a text, and within five minutes, he called me back, and we had a 20-minute conversation about this. So first thing he asked me is, why do you want completely non-computerized? If it's simply... Because he, here's... I don't want to infer what you're saying, but most people say I want non-computerized because they're easier to work with. But what I really hear is I want non-computerized in case EMP. If I'm wrong, follow up with me and let me know. I get it. I understand. Uh, the problem is to go back that far, you're looking at the seventh generation of the F-150s, 1980 to 1986. They're carbureted. They're a decent vehicle. But if you go one generation newer you can go to fuel injection the f-150 1987 to 1991 still a ton of room under the hood easy to work on easy to maintain solidly built but they're fuel injected here's what i like about fuel injected here's what my brother-in-law really likes about fuel injected especially if you're doing any off-roading whatsoever they're going to be way more reliable at many different angles and degrees. If you're going to be just doing prairie driving and whatever, carburetor's great. But anytime you're going to be doing heavy inclines or anything like that, so if we're looking for a quote-unquote bug-out vehicle, honestly, fuel injection overall is way better to go. And again, you know, if you're looking at the 7th generation F-150s, we're going back to 40 to almost 45 years old at that point. I mean, not just vintage, but antique. <laughs> You know, the, the, uh, you can cut 10 years off of that by going with a late model 8th generation F-150, which still has very little in the way of electronics. You could get one from 1990 or 1991, and you could keep a few extra parts on hand. I mean, if it, if it was that big of an issue, you could put, you know, anything you need for repairing or working on the fuel injection system in a Faraday box or something along those lines. But honestly, they are the way to go. Now, I also put it to him and I said, hey, Barrett, if you had one choice of a vehicle, a Ford that was basically a bug out vehicle, a work vehicle, sorry, around the farm kind of vehicle, a well-built vehicle, what would it be? And I could not get him to nail down something pre-1988. He said his absolute ideal built like a brick house <laughs> with a solid front end is the uh, Super Duty, 
that was made between 2000 and 2003 with the 5.4 liter engine and the twin I-beam suspension. He said that thing will run and run like a top for years. It's built like a tank. The problem is it's going to have a fair bit of electronics. So I got him to go back a little bit further, and he said a fuel-injected 92 to 93 F-150 would also be very sufficient for him. So where am I going with this? Well, I mean... There are a lot of vehicles, well, they're even, even here on the prairies where there's no salt on the roads and very, very little moisture, there are still not that many 19, early 1980s Ford F-150s on the road. Even the 87 to the 91 are around, but they're harder and harder to get. So what I think, here's my opinion, by trying to go back 40, 45 years, you're almost creating more problems for yourself by trying to solve one small problem. So the 8th or ninth generation Ford F-150s, in my mind, would be a really solid compromise between old enough that they have very few electronics and new enough that there's still enough of them around to get parts, and they're built very sturdy. So I hope that helps. I hope I didn't kibosh your dreams about having a zombie knocking down EMP-proof vehicle. And if you have to, go, yeah, go back 1986 and further back and you'll have basically zero electronics but my brother-in-law did mention that if you want to have basically an electronic free vehicle his thoughts were you almost have to go back to the 50s or 60s for something that would be zero affected by a cme or an emp for what that's worth so anyway appreciate you sending this question if you want to follow up with me send it to me and i'll send it to him and he will write paragraphs and paragraphs to answer it for you because that dude is a truck and vehicle guy through and through you got other questions for me send them along for entrepreneurship handyman landscaping poverty mindset solarpreneur backup power cross-country road trips anything and everything i'd love to hear from you and if you want to support what i'm up to add workshop radio to your podcast feed fill your ear holes with a little bit of uh, motivation and the idea behind it is kind of that radio that your dad or grandfather used to have hanging in the workshop that was just kind of always the background noise as you're getting stuff done love to be that for you so with that guys as always stay happy stay healthy and have a great week so here's the thing that always gets me about this it's a little bit different first of all i'm not worried about emp at all the end infinity and i don't think you should either i won't get into why i just don't though but if you are there's a lot of electronics you can fry in a 1980s pickup truck i i I, i'm just saying i'm just saying but without a doubt, the period of time with the worst performing vehicles from a horsepower and mechanical standpoint is 1972 to 1990. It's a garbage error. It's a garbage error. I, I know this has nothing to do with bug out vehicles or anything, but just kind of make my point. I have a 2020 Dodge Challenger. It's the V6, the XST. XXT, it is, by modern sports car standards, slow. Okay? Um, the, the equivalent Mustang and Camaro both beat it in the quarter. Okay? I just like it because it's cool looking. It's, I was more concerned about show than go, so I chose that one. Um, but, with the exception of the 1987 uh, Buick Grand National... And in 1989, they put the motor from that Grand National into a Pontiac Firebird. It was either 1989 or 1990. With the exception of that, those two vehicles, 
my six-cylinder Dodge Challenger built in 2020 would have outrun every single U.S. production vehicle made in the 1980s. Corvettes, Camaros, V8s, all of it. Why? Because in 1971, we introduced all the smog control bullshit, and the performance of the vehicles went to garbage. If you really want something very easy to work on, and incredibly robust with as little technology built into it as possible, you either have to go back to like 1969, which is a long time ago now, or you have to gut and rebuild something with like a straight up um, old school build, and it has to be probably then old enough to qualify as an antique car uh, so that you don't have the emissions test that I think every state in the union has now. I'll give you an example. I don't remember the year. I think it was the 60s. It could have been 50s. I kicked myself for not buying it now. When I was a kid looking for my first car, right on the side of the Pottsville-Minersville Highway, which calling it a highway is a bit of a stretch, there was a great big black Dodge car. It had a straight 8 in it. A straight 8. 20 people, not 20, it's an exaggerate. Four people could have got in the hood and you could have closed it and they would have fit in there. That's how much room there was to work. You could get to every spark plug, you could get the distributor, all of it, right? It basically had a motor, a radiator, a water pump, right? A distributor, and how much else? Like, anything that broke on that car, assuming you could get parts for it, anybody could have looked at it and went, oh, that's that's how you fix it. Now, if the alternator would have went out, if you don't maybe not know how to rebuild an alternator... But if you had an alternator, you'd just be like, oh, take that bolt off, loosen that bracket, pop the belt off, put the alternator on, tighten it back up. Yay! I mean, it was that a battery, right? I mean, there was hardly anything there. It was a heater coil. It had heat, no air conditioning, of course. Like, anybody that had a mechanical IQ over five could have replaced anything on that vehicle with no manual. You look at it, you take a bolt out here, put it back on. right? As long as you knew to disconnect the battery before you jack with anything electrical, and there wasn't much electrical, you could have worked on that car. Those days died long before the 1980s. You lift the hood on a 1985 vehicle, car or truck, I don't care. The amount of crap under that hood that is unnecessary and existed only for the smog control bullshit is insane. And it's what destroyed performance. And until everything went to high-end fuel injection, that's why the horsepower performance of those vehicles crap. You get a 1985 Corvette and put it up against a you know top-of-the-line 68 Camaro. Or 68 Firebird. Or a 67 Mustang Fastback. They don't have a prayer in hell. Now, I know we're talking about trucks versus cars here. That's my point. And I just think that people have this... I think most people that say a 1980s truck is easy to work on haven't worked on one. That's not to say that a nineteen or a 2022 truck is easy to work on. It's just... It isn't what most people seem to think. You know, growing up a kid that always had to do my own work on cars... And working on mostly 1970s, early 80s cars, I can tell you, it, it's, it's, it doesn't just make your life simple because you have an older vehicle. And you do definitely have reliability issues. I mean, you got to think about, 
I know when we sit here and we think like 1985, for those of us that lived through the 80s, and we were teenagers, you know, and we were driving around in cars, 1985 doesn't seem that long ago. Guys, it's 38 years. It's 38 years. And I want you to think about this. I'm going to make you feel old now if you're Gen X, right? When you were a kid, teenager, early 20s, something in that range, in 1985, and someone said 1965, man, you felt like that was a long time ago. At that time, that spread was 20 years versus the 38 years between now and 1985. it's, It's almost doubled. It's two years away from being doubled. Think before you decide that this is what you really want to do. Just my opinion. I, I wouldn't fault anybody for doing it, but it's it's not the panacea a lot of things have made it out to be. That said, if you want something from that era, easy to work on, get a diesel, get an old cut V, either a 1008 or a 1009. Uh, that, about 10 different parts, a standard toolbox, and an Army TM manual, and you really can just about fix most of the things that would ever go wrong with it. Uh, there's nothing special about them. But they were built for soldiers to work on, and uh, you know, as long as you uh, make sure it's in good shape, they're not a bad way to go if you want something old like that. Uh, next up, let's hear about Quisertin from Canberra, and I'm going to disagree, but agree, and it won't really make sense until you hear it. Hey, Jack Spearco and all you crazy TSP people, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Calvin. Calvin says, is it significantly easier for our bodies to absorb quercetin phytosome than just regular quercetin? We are trying to decide if we should change our quercetin supplements. Uh, okay, good question. So you may not like my answer, but I don't think you need to waste a penny on any quercetin supplement. Uh, quercetin is a phytochemical that occurs naturally in plants. They extract that, uh, through artificial means or they just, they manufacture the quercetin artificially, put it in a capsule, put it in a bottle and then act like it does magic. There's not a shred of nutritional research that shows that taking a quercetin supplement does anything at all beneficial for the human body. If you're eating a proper human diet, you're not, you're going to have the right amount of oxidation happening in your body. You need some oxidation. Uh, a lot of people think you need to take antioxidant everything and, and that oxidation is 100% bad. That's not true at all. The chemical processes in your body would grind to a halt and you would be dead within a few hours if you stopped all the oxidation in your body. Oxidation is a good thing in the normal amount. The way to ensure that normal amount is to eat a proper human diet and live a proper human life. The entire theory of taking antioxidants has been thoroughly debunked. There is no provable benefit from taking any antioxidant supplement. Now, a few years back, this was hugely popular, and all the big health-related gurus were talking about this and selling their own version. It's a complete and utter waste of your money. There is no proof that it helps anything except the quercetin manufacturer. And I hope you're not offended by my answer, but that is my answer, and I think it's based on common sense, logic, and facts. This is Dr. Barry. See you guys next time. So, as I've said, I have recommended quercetin many times. I will continue to recommend it. And in some, so therefore, you would say you completely disagree with Dr. Canberry on this. I don't. Doc just came at this from an angle, and that angle 
was taking quercetin as an antioxidant, as you would take something like pycnogenol uh, or vitamin C. Like both of those are antioxidants, and I believe if you are living a healthy life and you are eating the right food and like what Ken calls the proper human diet, you probably don't need a single supplemental antioxidant for your entire life. Our predecessors who were running around in the forest and stabbing things and picking them up and eating them didn't have it. And when people say, well, you know, they had fruits and vegetables. No, they didn't. Until about 10,000 years ago, most of the things that we call fruits and vegetables today didn't exist. And most of them didn't exist 10,000 years ago. It's that point forward that we started developing them. So on that standpoint, I agree. But that is not why I recommend Quisertin. You've never heard me say I recommend you take Quisertin because... <clears throat> it will uh, improve your overall health from an antioxidant standpoint. Quisertin is an ionophore for zinc. It's an ionophore for zinc. And what that means, it is, has the ability, and there's a few other things that do this. Green tea extract can do this. Uh, a well-known drug because of covates, hydroxychloroquine can do this. And you can take ass loads of zinc. And I've read the research. He said there's no research, and he's right. There's nothing that proves antioxidants make people healthy. Nothing. There's a mountain of research in what I'm about to tell you, all of it. If you want to go look for it, go ahead. So when we open that pathway and we get zinc inside the cell, any mRNA replicating virus, its ability to replicate is slowed down, impeded, or even at certain levels completely halted. So it is an immuno booster in that uh, manner. And again, there is research that has been done on this, both uh, in actually testing it in human beings and in vivo, which means we're looking at it in a Petri dish. We put cells in there. We add zinc to the solution. Zinc barely gets into the cells. And then we take the other dish and we put certain in there in the presence of the zinc, and the zinc goes into the cells. So we know this works. It's been done with humans. It's done. Uh, it's been done in the dish, and it's been done with mice, and it's been done with rats, and it's been done with monkeys. Now, here's the other thing that we know. We have literally intentionally infected cells in a laboratory environment with certain uh, viruses, including viruses that also uh, are, are seen as, as, as linchpins that cause cancer and with certain types of cancers. And when we put zinc in the cell, the ability of the cancer or the virus that can cause the cancer to replicate is impeded and or halted. Now, again, all of this is thoroughly, heavily researched. You can go to PubMed and you can read you know, a couple dozen studies that have been done on these things. So, do I recommend you take certain every day? Maybe, maybe not. It all depends. Do I take it every day? I don't. When stuff starts circulating around, if I am maybe sliding a little bit back from the things I should be doing, if there is a, a high incidence of any respiratory virus, it's an mRNA virus, not just COVID, uh, I begin taking uh, two quercetin a day in the presence of zinc, so a good zinc. And again, I know you can see you get plenty of zinc, but... We're talking about a different thing here. We're looking at this more as we might use a pharmaceutical for a specific application. And Ken's right. There are lots of plants that produce quercetin. As far as I know, there are no protein sources of quercetin. But even if you were a ketivore and you're eating, you know, plants that have this are things like aronia. You ain't going to eat only so many aronias. Uh, blueberry. 
uh, has quercetin. But you cannot get enough quercetin for the ionophore effect. And unless you know for a fact you're getting enough dietary zinc, taking the quercetin without the zinc doesn't really do anything. It will improve the efficiency of transportation of zinc across the cell membrane, but if there's not enough zinc to do that, then it won't really do anything. So Solray is the brand of zinc I recommend, and I say quercetin is a very basic plant extract. I don't think you need anything special in that regard, but it's not that we disagree. It's that we're coming at this from totally different vantage points, and I'm very interested if Ken would listen to this and tell me what he thinks about that. And before you do so, Ken, if you listen, please go to PubMed and please look up Quercetin is an ionophore for zinc and the research that's been done on it because it is a total game changer in that world. And I personally think, not with all cancers, but with many cancers, it's something that deserves serious attention. And it even proved to be somewhat effective with high amounts of zinc in the treatment of Ebola which is how I found it in the first place when the whole COVID thing started. So there was a Canadian PhD who did the research on it. And this dude is not pharma motivated because pharma doesn't make any money off something as simple as quercetin. All right, now for my segment. It'll be pretty brief today. I just wanted to bounce off you this concept that a lot of you guys homestead and you get into doing certain things. And often doing enough for yourself if the effort is a 5, doing enough to produce twice as much isn't a 10, it's like a 6.5. And, and if you do that in some smart ways and use you know, services like Nextdoor to market your product and what have you, it's very conceivable the average person, cash money, fence post money, call it whatever you want, could sell $1,000 to $10,000 a year worth of stuff. And again, fence post money. Me, you at a fence post, you got me? Here, here are five things that I absolutely know that if you figure out how to produce them in abundance, there's a market for it. You just have to find a market. One is worms. Worms. Uh, specifically, composting worms and night crawlers. There has never been a, ta- a year where I check you know, supply and availability of worms where I don't find major producers and suppliers of worms sold out. It happens every year because they'll get to a point with their their base population. They can only sell so much before they can breed back. So they stop selling. They say they're, sold. they're not really sold out. They're sold out of available worms to go out. A worm is not that difficult of a creature to take care of. And if you have a sufficient race stream to make worm compost, you can make lots of worms. And you can sell worms. You can sell worms to other composters, gardeners, homesteaders and you can sell them as bait and you can sell them as food uh, for reptiles and things like birds because like my ducks love worms Uh, next up kind of in the same vein black soldier flies black soldier flies are simple they're a solution to waste streams that you can't give to worms that don't compost well once they colonize something they will keep coming as long as you feed them they will keep coming they will keep coming the grub they produce is extremely high in fat and protein And it is incredibly valuable to many people that keep uh, fish and reptiles. And the frost is an incredible fertilizer, especially if it's put through a secondary composting process like worms. So you know where I'm going to go next. So you got the black soldier fly, you got the worms. And with the black soldier fly, you can sell the frost. You can sell the grubs. 
And you can even sell, there are people who buy black soldier fly eggs. And if you do a little bit of research and you learn about how to set things up so that they lay eggs, because black soldier flies don't eat anything, and they don't lay eggs on the thing that their, fr- their, their babies will eat. So basically you wad up cardboard and it gets to where it's very easy to see, oh, there's eggs on that. So all of those are marketable items. So where I'm going next then, obviously, is compost. Whether that's compost made with a Johnson Sioux bioreactor, whether it's standard compost, whether it's worm compost, whether it's black soldier fly compost, it doesn't matter. Compost is extremely valuable. And most people don't know how to make it, and most people don't understand that a lot of the compost you're going to buy from like a Home Depot or Lowe's is going to have persistent herbicides in it. And what it's going to absolutely lack is any indigenous microorganisms. You're not going to get a bag of compost of black cow cow manure from 500 miles away, completely dried out, sitting on a pallet at Home Depot or Lowe's that has any significant indigenous microorganism population in it. So if you can explain that in your marketing, your marketing can be a post on Nextdoor or Facebook Marketplace. If you can explain that shortly and concisely, then compost becomes another marketable product if you're making it for yourself and you're making more than you can use. And I would, in that case, screen it and bag it up in small bags and sell it as like something to use to when you're planting. Not so much like selling it by the ton. You, you, as a homesteader, as a side hustle, you don't really have time to be making compost by the... Well, you might make it by the ton, but you don't have time to be marketing it by the ton. You need to be selling small bags for significant returns, so like 20 bucks. Don't think you can't get it because you can. Next up is biochar. If I just did more burns, I could make bu- more biochar than I would ever be able to use here. I really could. Um... It sells for a lot of money. It really does. And if you start making it and you get really good at it and you also add to it a little bit of marketing, it's another product that has a tremendous untapped potential amongst the local market around you. And if you can explain the environmental benefits along with the benefits to the person, it's a very marketable product. Next up is plants and cuttings. So every year I make plants and cuttings. And I I haven't even done this in a while. I just don't, I've got so much going on. But there's a couple of years where when I got my my red uh, sweet potato, my Okinawan sweet potato slips going, I just started making trimmings and just sticking them in uh, the air stacks on my pond. Now you can make slips a lot of ways. It's just real convenient for me today. You just put them in a jar, right? And I was selling them for $10 for a bundle of 10. Now, I can make 10 sweet potato slips or cuttings or call them what it, rooted, whatever you want. And the actual amount of work is about a minute a piece. And so I think that one year I did like 10 bundles of 10. So it was 100 bucks. But it was 100 bucks I didn't have. And I did no work. I just made a posting and said, you know, DM me. And whenever you want to come by and pick them up, uh, you can you know, when they once they DM me here's a phone number I don't want to put out public and text me and if I'm not if I'm not around I'll you know I'll, I'll put them in a, a cup of water uh, shade it and I'll tell you where they are and you just pick them up and you know stick stick an envelope with ten bucks in it in my mailbox I've never had a problem doing things like that uh, I right now I have a four by four bed of comfrey 
that I really need to cut it back, pull it out, and make cuttings, uh, root cuttings, and replant, you know, 10% of what comes out of it. I have other things I can do with it, but comfrey is a valuable plant, right? I have several rare mints. I can make mint cuttings like lightning fast, easier even than making cuttings from um, sweet potato. And you, well, mint, who wants mint? Well, first of all, Home Depot, Lowe's, all the box stores are selling mint plants now for five bucks a plant. It's criminal. I'm sorry, it is. But they have, you know, chocolate mint, peppermint, spearmint. All right. I have things like uh, iced hazelnut mint from, uh, from, I can't, Jim Westerfield is the guy that developed it. And I, and I have another mint called Candy Pops and things like that. So, you know, you can pick up one plant like that, get one big planter going with it, and make 50, 100 of those a year. You don't have to have a nursery. You don't have to be in the business. So those are the ideas I have. I also wanted to give you some, like, well, how do I combine these things or do value add with them? So if you're doing compost, it's one thing to sell compost. Total different thing to sell compost tea. You know, you can make a five-gallon bucket of compost tea and use it on your garden. You can make a 30-gallon trash can, put it on a couple cinder blocks with a bulkhead to spigot in the bottom so it's easy to drain, and whenever you're going to do a batch of compost, take orders from your local market before you make it. I'm about to make compost tea. I sell compost tea by the quart, the gallon, the half gallon, whatever it is you want to do it by, for X dollars. It needs to be used within 48 hours of it being produced for maximum efficiency. Does anybody want any? I will, the next batch I'm going to start is going to be Friday. It will be available for pickup on Sunday morning. So you don't even make it unless you know you can sell it. And any extra you have, just apply it. Just apply it. That would be one thing. How about inoculated biochar? You're going to make compost and tea, inoculate the biochar, and sell the biochar pre-inoculated. And explain what that does. Um... Or put the biochar in the compost, which is the best practice anyway, and market that when you sell the compost. Or take your compost and make small bags with biochar as a tilth lightener. Include enhancements to fertility and from the standpoint of biologics and minerals and nutrient and call it organic potting soil. And explain, you know, you won't have these stupid little white puffy things floating up. And again, just look at what potting soil sells for in small bags at Walmart, the cheapest shit out there, and add 20% to it, and don't apologize to it. And you're basically making money on dirt. And then just take that and expand it. Like, what else can you do with that concept? And I want to be clear with what I'm talking about here. I am not talking about trying to become like the compost mogul of the Midwest or something here. I'm actually talking about intentionally keeping this small. But, you know, if you did four, three, four, five of these products a year, you can easily make a few thousand bucks a year extra. It's all cash money. It's all money you didn't have. You don't have to work that hard for it. And because it's small amounts and because you're just testing it, if, you, if you're doing like all this stuff or some other things you think you can monetize, just test it. You know, maybe put together a cheap little website. Then you learned how to build a website so that you look official. And just put it out to your local market through very simple means. And if something doesn't work, don't worry about it. Put something else out. The ones that work will lead you, right? So when you put this out that you have these things and someone comes over and picks up, let's say, a bag of your compost, 
uh, and they didn't respond to the ad about plants and cuttings. Oh, would you like some comfrey with that? I sell root cuttings for a small bag of like four cuttings for ten bucks. They might not even know what comfrey is or why they would want it. Well, you can make your own fertilizer with it. It will heal the ant bites you're inevitably going to get as a gardener, etc. Like, so now you start creating this pull so that you can cross-market product. It's very basic business. It's like business 101. It never has to be big. And you only have product when you have product. So you're not working year-round to do it. You take your times of year where you're in production of these things. You sell your surplus. You pocket the money. And you go on from there. And I'm going to tell you, two to four thousand dollars a year can change people's lives. Two thousand dollars, two to four thousand dollars a year for ten years is twenty to forty thousand dollars added to your retirement of nothing else. Don't leave money on the table in your business or your life. With that, let's go ahead and talk about our item of the day today. So I am totally stoked about today's item of the day. This is one of the first item of the days. And only a few, I guess, ever have come to me starting out as a gift. They are made by a company. I've been corrected multiple times. I think I have determined the right way to say it because I get corrected and it's a different way than the last way. Knipex, K-N-I-P-E-X. And they are a German company with solid German engineering. And the, the product I have for you today are their Cobra pliers. These things are flipping amazing. You want to check my write-up out, just so you can see like the little video I'm linked to in it and all, and the video I made today. Imagine a pair of channel lock pliers. That's what they most look like. But when you're adjusting the jaw distance, there's a button. You push the button, and wherever distance you set that, it stays there. Now imagine you could do something like put it on a bar that was strong enough to hold you and clamp it down, but it's not a vice lock. It'll come right off if you lift up, but if you push down, it will not slip. So much that a full-grown man can step on the back of it and it'll support your weight. Because the teeth on the jaws are like the teeth of a snake, like a coolabrid snake. They're curved inward, and they're actually curved outward from the bottom jaw. And that means there is the, t the harder you pull, the tighter the grip. They won't slip. If the thing won't move, the thing won't move. It's not because they slipped. And we've all had, you know, even good channel locks. You get them just right, you get them on there, and they slip. These don't slip, and they don't. you don't have to fight them to get them where you want them to be. They're just awesome. They're kind of pricey. Um, they have them in sizes from little bitty 4-inch ones that are awesome EDC pliers. All the way up to 22-inch. So that's the one that's like, I said you were coming off, and I meant it. The 12-inch ones will grab the backside, the back nut of a two-inch bulkhead, which is about the biggest thing I have here, though it's kind of pushing their limits, so I might step up and get a set of the 16s. I'll warn you, they are kind of like lays. Once you get a pair, you want more. J.R. Haley brought me a three-pack set, three pack set of the 7, the 10, and the 12-inch. And since then, I've bought a 5-inch set and a 4-inch set. The 5-inch may, in fact, make a, may make a better EDC than a little bit 4-inch ones because of a clip that you can install, which I haven't got my clip yet to try it. It's not so it's, it's like an aftermarket thing. But one guy on Amazon and the reviews figured out, I'm like, I'm going to try that. Uh, but read my write-up on these. And let me tell you something else about them. If you know somebody who likes tools, Christmas is coming. These are a great Christmas present. If you are a woman that listens to the show, and there are many of you, I think it's about 30% female actually in the audience from all the demographic data that I can derive from my analytics. Um, and you have a guy in your life who likes tools? Oh, 
The only thing you need to make sure is he doesn't already have them. Because whatever he does have will go second tier to these things like that. Pricey, what do I mean by pricey? I mean, if you compare them to other top brands like Snap-on or something, they're not. If you compare them to like, oh, I don't know, the discount bin at, at Harbor Freight or Tractor Supply, they are. So like a three-pack set, the 7, 10, and 12 together, is like $110. Uh, the little bitty ones are like $25 to $35, depending on what size you pick. So they're definitely more expensive than off-brand aftermarket things. They're more expensive than even like channel locks or like the cobalt version of channel locks, which are pretty good for what they are, but they're so much better. And because of those teeth, the way they're designed, you can use them like a ratchet. And what I mean by like that is you have a nut, a bolt, anything, a pipe, and you need to keep turning it. It will absolutely lock when you're pushing down, but when you lift up, since the teeth are opposite, you just let a little pressure off, and it will like come up and not grab. So down, up, down, up, down, up. You use them like a ratchet. Imagine you're working on a nut or a bolt in a vehicle in a tight little area, and you can't get a socket on it. You get a combination wrench on it. You turn it, but it's one of those ones that's tight all the way out, and you can't just reach underneath your fingers. You can't get your fingers in there. So you're turning the wrench around back and forth over and over again. You can get these things in there, boom, 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 boom. That bolt is toast. It's off. It's coming off. One of the best tools from a design and engineering standpoint I have ever seen. Again, they are called Knipix, and these are particularly the Cobra pliers. Definitely read the write-up on this today. Check the videos out. My video, the one, the third-party video I put on it, it's pretty freaking fantastic how good these, if you can't tell, like, I am kind of jounced about these, and I've already had tons of people saying, I knew about those, I have them, that's all I'll use. And I would say this, I haven't had any other tools from Knipex in my hands, but I would order anything from these people that I ever needed forever because I'm that impressed with their quality. I, you do not hear me talk like this frequently, do you? Like I'm like, best value to price ratio, whatever. this is just best quality, period. Absolutely fantastically engineered. Uh, again, German engineering has always been really good. Uh, check these out. Knipex, Cobra pliers. And I will be releasing next week two lists of T-SPAS items. One will be like my top 10 for gifts. And one will be like the top 10 best-selling items this year. Because both of those might help people as we come into the holiday season. Um, these will definitely make the list of top 10 gifts, especially, again, the little ones for EDC. I mean, these have me thinking about, like, do I really need to be carrying a multi-tool anymore? Because multi-tools are, like, the best solution, but they still suck in many ways. What you can do with a set of the small Knipex pliers versus the pliers on even the best multi-tool, it's so night and day, it's not even a comparison. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow will be a Friday flashback. Uh, please, like I said, if you're like, they're all ones like, dude, turn in, it's aw tune in, it's awesome. And I'll be back on Monday, and Monday we'll be doing a show on hydroponics to grow salad greens throughout your winter indoors. I got a lot of cool stuff for you in that one, and we haven't talked about it for a while. I will catch you on Monday. Uh, I'll catch you tomorrow with a flashback, and on Monday with a brand new episode. Are they gonna bail you out just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this 
love you a better way.